This morning we're in Daniel chapter 8 as we continue to go through the book of Daniel. If you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There's uh, some Bibles in the back. Uh, Please feel free to grab one of those on the way out for you to keep and read and and study uh, with us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you that you're in control, even when there's difficulty, even when there's chaos. And as we go through this chapter, we're reminded that, that things are difficult, but yet your promises are true. I pray for those that are going through difficulty this morning that you would encourage them. Lord, and as we head into this time of year of of holidays, we pray that we could be effective, salt and light, that we could be used by you. And Father, we want to surrender afresh to you. Not your will, not our will, but your will be done. We want your will in our lives. Father, would you pour out your spirit in this service? Would you set me aside and give me your grace and strength in teaching your word? So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is certain? What is certain in this life? If you are going to think about the things that you can absolutely count on, it becomes a pretty short list, doesn't it? In fact, we know that in this life, pretty much everything is subject to change except what? The Lord. The Lord is certain. He is our our confidence and our hope. As we look at this chapter, Daniel chapter 8, it's a vision that God gives uh, to Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are his life and times, his experiences. And then from chapter 7, moving on, it's four visions that he received uh, from the Lord. So this is the second vision that he received from God. And it prophesies a difficult time for the children of Israel. To the point where it makes Daniel feel sick at this vision that he has received. But in the midst of these difficult times for Israel, there's things that are certain. There's things that we can know that God is is faithful. And so that's where we find the application for us this morning is there are difficult times in life, but yet God gives us certainty in the midst of it. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's an interesting verse and I want to read it to you. It says this, Hebrews 12, verse 27, it says, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are being shaken, of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Paraphrase is God shakes the things that are shakable, so that we would focus on the kingdom that is unshakable. God's kingdom is unshakable. It's been uncertain times. It's been quite a six months with all the hurricanes that have taken place, all the wildfires that have happened throughout the West, all the violence that we see in our country. And God is shaking things. God's allowing things to be shaken so that we would focus on what can't be shaken. And that's the kingdom of God. So It's uncertain times, but God's kingdom is very certain. There's three things I want to highlight as we go through our our text today that are certain. It's our future, our victory, and our mission. Those things that we know are very clear before us. Our future, our our victory, and our mission. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, 
after the one that appeared to me the first time. So two years after the first vision that he's received, Belshazzar is king. He's in the third year of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king of Babylon, and this is prior to the Medes and the Persians coming and taking power. In verse 2, I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Sushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Eliam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uliah. So in the vision now, Daniel is in Sushan. Sushan is 200 miles away from Babylon, which is modern-day Iran, two miles e- 200 miles east of, of Babylon. It's one of Persia's royal cities, and this is the location in which God gives this vision to Daniel. There's no reason to think that, that Daniel was physically transported here, but, but in his vision, this is where these things take place. Sushan is going to develop as the Old Testament continues. We know Esther serves in the palace of Sushan. We know Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer in this palace of of Sushan. So that's where things are are headed. I was reminded as we look at Daniel, remember Daniel's serving in Babylon. Esther serves in the palace of Sushan. Nehemiah, the same palace. Joseph serves in the court of the Pharaoh, God raised up godly men and women to be influenced in a pagan culture in the highest place. And sometimes I think we get really discouraged as believers when we serve in a dark environment. Maybe you're enjoying Sunday, but you know Monday's coming, and you've got your own palace of Shushan to deal with. You've got your own Babylon to to deal with, and it's your workplace. You know, high school students that are in here this morning, as you head into your high school campuses, maybe you go, man, it's a dark place, and I'm not looking forward to to having to go there on on Monday morning. Maybe your neighborhood, your apartment complex, you you feel like, man, the darkness is just closing in. You may be the Nehemiah that God wants to be there, the Esther that God wants to be there to be able to share that that salt and light. In verse 3, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the other one came up last. So in his vision, he sees a ram. And this ram's got two horns, but one horn is higher than the other. And this is prophesying the Medes and the Persians that will come and conquer Babylon. Later in the chapter, that's going to be interpreted for us. And the one horn being larger is the Persians. The, the, the Persians became more powerful than the Medes. Iran, for most of their history, called themselves Persia. They're ethnically Persians. And just more in ro- modern history, not too very long ago, they changed the name of their country to, to Iran. The, the Persians became very powerful where the Medes kind of drop off of, of the scene. And that's prophesied here all the way back in, in Daniel 8. In verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So the Medes and the Persians, this ram is able to go wherever he'd like and no one's able to withstand him. We've got the joy of looking back of these things being fulfilled, But Babylon's still in power. People can't imagine that there would be another world-dominating empire, but yet God is prophesying it. God is is declaring it. In verse 5, And as I was 
considering suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So this is now a goat that is being seen in the, in the vision, and there's a horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, which he moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. This is prophesying Alexander the Great. This goat with the one horn between, between his eyes. And Alexander the Great came into power very quickly and conquered the, the very known world very fast. Very, very, very fast with a small army. And God prophesied that. And who in Daniel's day, in the third year of Belshazzar, would have ever thought of the Greeks under Alexander's leadership coming in and dominating the world? There's an interesting point in Josephus. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jewish historian named Josephus, but he writes in book 11, chapter 8, section 5, that when Alexander the Great came into Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem, the high priest comes out and begs him to spare Jerusalem and actually reads to him Daniel chapter 8 and says, you're the goat that was prophesied Alexander the Great then listened and responded and chose not to destroy uh, Jerusalem. Now that account's been, you know, something that liberals look at that they say, I don't know if that really happened. And I can't tell you with absolute certainty that that happened or not. But I can tell you this, it is in the works of Josephus. And he is a very credible uh, Jewish historian. Also, I can tell you if I was the priest in Jerusalem, I'd be doing everything that I possibly could to spare uh, God's city. And I'd be going out to Alexander the Great saying, hey, can we get a meeting? Uh, let's open up Daniel chapter 8. But we do know this. God saw Alexander the Great. And God prophesied of the Greeks coming in and dominating the world. In verse 8, therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it were four notable ones came up toward the four winds of, of heaven. Alexander the Great dying at a young age, dying at 33, then his kingdom was divided between four strong generals, and that's prophesied here for us in Scripture. This prophecy is given to us 200 years before the rise of Alexander the Great and his death and the passing to his four generals. Verse nine, and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, towards the glorious land, which is the promised land of Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts and by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So the prophecy here being one of these horns coming in and attacking the promised land, and specifically the temple, and stopping the daily sacrifices in the temple. And this goes on in verse 12, because of transgression, 
an army was given over to the horn to oppress the daily sacrifice. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And this ultimately speaks of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes and also foreshadows the, the Antichrist. But Antiochus the Epiphanes came in, attacked Israel. As Israel revolted against him, in one day he killed 40,000 Jews. Just in one day. Goes in, takes control of the temple, desecrates the temple, goes into the Holy of Holies, and slaughters a pig. Why is this so, so offensive to God's people? Because a pig's not kosher. God was very specific on what was to be done inside of, of his, his temple. Also in the book of Revelation, we see that the Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple as well. The Bible calls it the abomination of desolation. This does indicate to us that in some time in the future, there will be another temple that is going to be built. When you look at uh, the Temple Mount today, what do you find? You find the Dome of the Rock, which is a holy site for Muslims. You don't find the temple. It's a highly disputed piece of real estate. The nation of Israel is just not going to build the temple anywhere. You're not going to find the temple being built in Orlando or Los Angeles or in London. It's going to be built right there. And so at some point, that's going to be solved. And there will be a temple that will be uh, rebuilt and the Antichrist will come in and desecrate uh, the temple. In verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said, to that certain one who is speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. So how long are the daily sacrifices going to stop? How, how long is there going to be a desecration in uh, the, the, the temple? It's hard for us to get our mind around how important the temple is to the Old Testament believers to to Daniel and to the Jews at this time. And so this is a very natural question of of how long that this is going to last. Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So this time of desolation with Antiochus Epiphanes is 2,300 days. Walvert and Zuck has written a really good commentary. It's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And he states this, the six years were given for Antiochus from his first invasion of Jerusalem in 170 BC until the Maccabees were able to overthrow Antiochus Epiphany in 164 BC, which is six years, which turns out to be 2,300 days. So, so this is the time that Antiochus Epiphanes is allowed to be able to desecrate uh, the temple. And some of you have heard of the Maccabees. Uh, the Maccabees were the ones that said no more. Jews that stood up against this revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, and God allowed a victory to to be won. And the way that the story goes is as they come in and were able to take over the temple once again, they only had enough oil to light the lamps for for one day. And you know God instructs for them to be continually lit. It was going to take eight days for them to be able to produce new new oil. God was very specific on which oil was, was to be used. And God did a miracle, and that that oil that was only supposed to last one day lasted eight days. 
which then the Jews developed a feast to remember this deliverance called the Feast of Lights, which we know as Hanukkah and is celebrated right before, before Christmas. Jesus in John 10, uh, verse 22, comes during the Feast of, of Dedication, ultimately the, the Feast of Lights pointing to Jesus Christ as being the light of the world, the light in the temple pointing ultimately to Jesus being the light of the world. So you may be asking at this point, well, what does this have to do with my life? You know, I know it's daylight savings and I got an extra hour of sleep, but, but Eric, you are putting me in snooze zone this morning, right? I want us to just pause for just a moment in this, this study, ask the questions, what is certain? And we see God's infinite knowledge of the future through these prophecies. There's great detail in this section of Daniel, from chapter 7 to chapter 12, where God's making it very clear that he knows the future. In fact, he controls the future. Here's the the Medes and the Persians before they have their world dominance, and God's saying, I know, and I'm going to allow for them to take center stage. And then after the the Medes and the Persians, here comes Alexander the Great. And then out of these four generals is going to come this man, Atticus Epiphanes, and he's going to desecrate the temple. But I want you to know it's not going to be permanent. That there's going to be an end to, to that. And God knows your future as well. So that's the first thing to take note of this morning. What is certain? It's our future. Our, our, our future is certain. God has already seen your days. He knows the number of your days. He knows the number of days for your, for your children and, and your grandchildren. He's well acquainted with your, with your future, and he's in control. There's a great promise that was given to Israel during this time, right when they were being taken captive, taken to Babylon, Jeremiah 29, 11, God speaks and says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, that of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. They may have been thinking that God was going to give up on them. God was correcting them out of his love for them. God could have said, you've spent generations in idolatry. I'm done with you. But God says, I want you to know that I have a future and a hope for you. And in 70 years, I'm going to bring you back into the land. When you think about God having thoughts towards you, does that bring you comfort or consternation? Like, oh, God's thinking about me, but what kind of thoughts is he having? Like, I want to bless Eric, or I want to fry his face off, right? So it's really good that God clarifies, and he says, the thoughts that I think towards you are that of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And you may say, look, I, I have messed up my life. I have contributed sin. We, we all have, and, and now you're starting to think, could, could there be a future for my life? Absolutely. When we stop to lay hold of the future that God has for us, despair enters in, doesn't it? And as times are uncertain, we can easily, even as believers, not be hopeful towards towards the future. And yes, I'm talking about eternal life, but also the rest of your life. I hope you're excited about the rest of your life. You know, Paul didn't say, I want to go to heaven because this life stinks. He said that he was torn between the two in Philippians chapter 1. He wanted to go to heaven because it was so good, but he also wanted to stay here and have fruit in this life. And I hope you have a great hope for heaven and also a great hope for saying, as long as God gives me life, I know that he has a purpose for my life. Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that there's the absence of pain in your future. 
God's predicting pain for the children of Israel. And there will be pain in our lives. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. But in the midst of the pain, God's doing great work. He's showing himself to us. Many times it's in the pain that we have opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ. So this section of Daniel shows us God's knowledge of the future and gives us comfort for our future as well. In verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Daniel has seen the vision and he wants to know the meaning, and I like that. He's hungry for a greater revelation, for a greater understanding. And may God stir our hearts to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to ask, to seek, to knock. And all of a sudden, there stood a man before him, one that had the appearance of a man, and I heard a voice between the banks of Uliah who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So Gabriel gets the instruction to cause Daniel to understand the vision. Gabriel's a pretty famous angel. Where do we know Gabriel? From the New Testament with Mary, when Mary hears that she's gonna be pregnant with God's son. Also with Zacharias, who would be the father of John the Baptist. Zacharias and his wife were unable to have kids and old in their age, past the time of having children. And Zacharias had a difficult time believing that God would give them a child. So God made Zacharias mute until John the Baptist was born. And it was probably a great pregnancy for his wife. I mean, it's probably a real gift to his wife as she just could have a, a mute husband during, during that time. I don't know about you husbands. Did you ever say anything stupid while your wife was pregnant? I guess it was only me that's ever done that, right? So Gabriel's also on the pages of the Old Testament. Someday we're going to meet Gabriel. That'll be fun. Not near as fun as seeing the Lord and meeting the Lord, but we're going to be able to, to meet Gabriel as well. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So he said, this vision points to the, the time of the end that this time with Antiochus Epiphanes, it, it, there will be an end. It, it's pointing to the end. Also, foreshadowing the Antichrist, when the Antichrist comes in and desecrates the temple, the end is very near. We know after the tribulation that Christ is literally going to return, that Christ is going to rule and reign. So this vision, Gabriel tells us, refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground but he touched me and stood me upright and he said look I'm making known to you what will happen in latter time of indignation for at the appointed time the end shall be he's saying Daniel this is yet in the future this this event with Antiochus Epiphany and also the Antichrist in verse 20 the ram which you saw having the two horns they are the kings of Media and Persia. So God predicted that. We're able to look back and see that God predicted that even before it happened. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between the eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. God's prediction and prophecy. 
As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of the nation, but not with its power. Less power for the four generals. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. Why did God allow Antiochus Epiphanes to come in and desecrate the temple in this way? It's clear from Daniel 8 it was because of their transgressions. When their transgressions have reached their fullness, God got to that point of then allowing judgment to come. And Antiochus kissed the Epiphanes, also pointing to the Antichrist, is fierce with sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and he shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. So Antiochus Epiphanes and also Satan having power that comes beyond them. We know that the Antichrist is going to be empowered by Satan. In verse 25, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. So describing Antiochus, describing the Antichrist, comes with cunning and deceit. The Antichrist is going to be very deceitful. There's going to be a type of leader that if people aren't being careful, they'll fall right into his deception. Both men exalt themselves. Antiochus, Epiphanes, Epiphanes means the shiny one. Can you imagine naming yourself the shiny one? And the Antichrist is going to exalt him, himself. He'll destroy many in their prosperity. One of the ways the Antichrist is going to bring destruction is by the promise of pr- prosperity. It's amazing what people will do and give up for, for prosperity. Come against the prince of princes. Come against Jesus Christ. But I want you to focus on this. But he shall be broken without human means. God defeats Antiochus Epiphanes. God defeats the Antichrist. And our victory is certain. Our victory is certain. As we look in the book of Revelations, and this seems to be foreshadowing a time that's yet future that's called the tribulation. How does the tribulation end? The seven years where God pours out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. It return, it ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when the Antichrist is doing all this junk with the temple and having his day, it's very, very close to the end when Christ is going to return. I want to try to clarify a couple of terms here as we look at our victory that's certain in the Lord. And I, I hope that you understand these two terms. What do we mean by second coming of Christ? And what do we mean by, by rapture? So turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 24. And look at verse 29 through 31, where it talks about the second coming of Christ. So, so first let's try to define the, the second coming of, of Christ. Matthew 24, verse 29, this is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is sharing this from the Mount of Olives. Immediately after the tribulation of the days that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven 
will be shaken. So after the tribulation, there's this sign that the sun will be darkened, the moon doesn't give light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Now, a lot of people asked me when we had the lunar eclipse and the different blood moons, is this a fulfillment of Matthew 24? Nowhere close, okay? This is something that is so supernatural, you can't miss it. Like, the sun is not going to give light. The moon is not going to give light. And goes on to say, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So this is the ultimate sign. The Son of Man appears in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the man, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And you might want to write it down Zechariah 12, verses 10 and 11, where it's prophesied there as well. Remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, he said, I'm going to go up. And he goes up. And the disciples are like, what do we do now? We'll just hang out here. And the angel goes, guys, you got a job to do. He's going to come back to this very same place. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Revelation, we see that Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem. So that's the, the second coming of Christ. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that that happens after the tribulation. Our, our text even tells us in verse 29, after the tribulation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So turn with me to one more uh, text. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse uh, 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. It's further into your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, keep going. After the book of Acts, you get into the epistles, and eventually 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. If you can't find it and your neighbor finds it, take their Bible, give them yours. (laughs) If you've got your Bible app, you cheated, you're already there. This now defines the rapture of the church. This gives us the biblical teaching of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those things which have fallen asleep, concerning those which have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So it is possible that the rapture of the church happens at a different time than the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because here, this is describing that Christ is in the clouds and the church is caught up and then we're forever uh, with the Lord. And unless the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation, it's really hard to adopt a view that God could come at any time. And Jesus told us very clearly, watch and be ready for my coming. And we know we're not in the tribulation. If you read the book of Revelation, it's very clear we're not in the tribulation. There's no temple. There's no, there's no antichrist that, that's on the scene. So if you do- adopt a mid-tribulation rapture view or a post 
tribulation after review, your, your post-toasties, you know, you're like after the, the, the tribulation. Well, Christ can't come today for his church. That, that, that's, that, that's not even impossible. So one of the reasons that I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture view is it's the only one that teaches the imminent return of Christ, that Christ could really come today. He could rapture the church today. And that really affects our behavior, doesn't it, if we believe that Jesus could come today. Also, it tells us comfort one another with these words. And then into chapter five, verse nine, it says, for God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in context, it's talking about rapture and it says God hasn't appointed us to wrath. What is the tribulation called in the book of Revelation? The wrath of the lamb. Jesus took the wrath for us, so why would we be receiving the wrath of God uh, upon us? To me, a mid-tribulation rapture view is not comforting. Hey, you're gonna go through half of the tribulation. Be comforted, have a great day, you know? You're gonna go through all of the tribulation, you know, have a great day. No, that doesn't provide comfort. But here, comfort one another with these words. And like we've talked about in pre- past studies, you, you can hold different positions and we can be unified in Christ, you know. But what we do know is our victory is certain. But we do know is the Antichrist doesn't have the last words. Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist, going back to Daniel chapter 9, are destroyed without human means. Now turn in your Bible back to Daniel 9 verse 25 and he says, but he shall be broken without human means. And this is where I want to speak to your heart for just a moment is know this, the victory is sure. The victory is sure. Are things going to be uncertain between now and the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Are things going to get more difficult before they get better? Absolutely. Are there going to be more birth pains leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But is the victory certain? Yes. And we get to live life from a position of victory. Our victory is certain. Let's finish out the chapter in verse 26 and 27. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Daniel's told, I just want you to seal this up. This is for days yet in the future. We've seen some fulfilled and yet some that is future. And then verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business and I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Daniel gets discouraged. He's sick for many days. He seems to be just, just wiped out because he understands that this is going to mean difficulty for the nation of Israel. But then at some point, he gets up and he goes back about the king's business, Belshazzar. And ultimately, is he serving Belshazzar? No. He's serving the father. And for us, I think we find the last thing that's certain, and it's our mission. It's our mission. In light of all these things and end times events and the second coming of Jesus Christ, we either have a choice to make that we can get completely wiped out like Daniel, overwhelmed and going, man, things are going to get more difficult and I don't know how things are going to play out. Or we can respond and say, I'm going to be about my father's business. I'm going to be about his mission. I'm going to get up and serve where God has called me and placed me to serve. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old and he comes to the temple 
with Mary and Joseph. And they leave, and on their way back to Nazareth, they say, hey, where's Jesus? Oh, I thought you had him. No, I thought he was with this aunt or uncle or this cousin. And they lost the son of God. Maybe maybe a tension point in their marriage. Mary, it's your fault. No, Joseph, it's it's your fault. And they look for their 12-year-old for three days. Imagine losing your 12-year-old for 12 hours let alone for three days. Jerusalem's packed at this point, and they're just going through people. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? They finally decide to look in the temple, and what does Jesus say? I I don't know why you guys are surprised. I was about my father's business. And Jesus gives us his mission statement, his life statement, his life goal. I'm going to be about my father's agenda. I'm going to be about my father's will. Jesus woke up every day, and he surrendered, and he said, Father, what do you have today? And that's what God desires for us. And I think it's a really important time for us as believers. I'm sure that you've noticed the last two weeks in our city have been, been brutal. KKTV wrote an article on Thursday, November 2nd, just, just a few days ago, that in that week, that period of time from Thursday to the, to the prior Thursday, the end of October to November 2nd, we had 11 people shot in our city. The article went on to to say that many of them were teenagers. Something happening right now as we speak with with our teens right here in our our community where there's this outbreak of of violence. And then Friday night, we had another shooting downtown take place. And, And guys, God's heart for us is clear. He wants us engaged in the life of people. He wants us engaged in in this community, in this in this city. Jesus said. To the disciples, after he died and rose again, he said, I want you to go take this message out. I don't want this message of my death and resurrection to just stay here with with you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, observing them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus gave us a great promise in the midst of that command. He says, lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. Now imagine you're the disciples and you've just witnessed his death and resurrection. And Jesus is like, I'm giving you this big task, but I'm with you. I have all authority. And Jesus even told him that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. Now go and make disciples. And are we on mission the way that Daniel was on mission? The way that Jesus was on mission? To say, I'm going to be about the Father's business. A lot of times we think that God can't use us because we've got our own struggles, our own challenges. We fall short, you know, our own insecurities. And God loves using broken people. You know, the gospel isn't, well, I'm perfect And once you receive Christ as your savior, you're going to be perfect too. It's like, you know me, you know my struggles, you know my shortcomings. And the gospel is Jesus died for my sin and he rose again and he's forgiven my sin and he's in the process of changing me. Even as believers, our lives are still a mess. We know, don't we? It's nothing compared to like before we knew Christ, but now we're still struggling. We're very much in process. And as we're sharing Christ with others, we're not sharing our perfection. We're sharing Christ's perfection. You don't have to have the Bible all figured out, you know? We're never gonna have this all all figured out. Maybe you've been believing this lie that you've gotta read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation before you can even share it. 
You know what I love about kids? What they understand, they're willing to share. You know, when they, when they hear of John 3, 16 and they really get it, they're like, man, God loves you. Jesus died for you. Whosoever believes shall have everlasting life. And this causes life to have meaning. This is a certainty. This is something that we know is certain in life. Every day we wake up and God gives us breath. We've got a job to do, don't we? And you're going to encounter people in your homes, in your apartments, and in school, in the grocery store. Every step we go and say, say, Lord, what are you doing? What I love about the book of Acts is you've got a group of people that are surrendered to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's active in their life. They're filled with the Spirit to where when the Holy Spirit gives them instruction, they do it, even if it seems crazy. And maybe the Holy Spirit puts upon your heart, you know, walk across the street and talk to your neighbor. No, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. They're gonna think I'm crazy. God, this is America. We don't talk to our neighbors. <laughs> and God's like, hey, they're, they're out in the yard. Just, just go ask them how they're doing. You have no idea where the conversation's gonna go. Maybe it's gonna go nowhere, but God wants that person to be loved on, and he's saying, just go, just go love on him. Just take a time to, to be with him. Maybe God's been putting a, a coworker on your heart or a fellow student on your heart, and the Lord's been saying, make time for them, pray for them, reach out to them. But God wants to use you. God is using you. And Daniel, in the midst of everything that he received, he finally decides, you know what? I'm just gonna get up and know what God's called me to do today. Maybe you're saying, honestly, I got lost in this Bible study and I don't know how this applies to me. Well, this is how it applies to you. Is God wants you to use this afternoon for his glory, to live for his name. God wants us to wake up Monday morning and say, God, I'm on mission for for you. I want you to imagine with me as we close for for just a moment what it's going to be like when we're around the throne room of God and we get to behold Christ all of a sudden there's going to be a lot of clarity of what mattered in our lives. And then maybe you start to look around the throne room of God. I think the first ones we're going to look for are our family. Like our spouse, our kids, our parents, our brother, our sister. Why is there going to be tears in heaven? There's going to be tears in heaven. It's going to hurt when a loved one's not there man, my brother's not here. My son's not here. My mom's not here. My coworker that I worked 40 years with isn't here. But then you see maybe one of your kids run up to you and you're like, oh man, you're here. Oh man, you're here. And then you find a neighbor And they come to you and they say, you know, I just want to thank you for being in my life and sharing Jesus with me. And I I was only your neighbor for three years. I ended up moving. And then five years after that, I received Christ as my Savior. That's all that's going to matter is Christ and looking around the throne room of God. And we want as many people as possible to be there. Amen? To be there. And we can't force them. They get to choose. But we get to share with them the whosoever message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, that you love us so much. You would allow him to be crucified. You would send him to be crucified on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And God, we desperately desire for all of our loved ones to know you and to follow you. For those of us that do have children and spouses, God, we we lift up our children before you and ask that you would be gracious to reveal yourself to them. Lord, we pray for kids that have walked away from you and maybe they're adults now and they've been raised in the church and right in this room, parents have raised their kids in your ways, but they're The kids have walked away. They've become prodigals. And we just ask as a church family that those kids would come back to you. Lord, but we also pray for our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, strangers. Lord, we lift up our city to you and all this violence that's taking place. We pray for opportunities to share the good news, to share the gospel, to share the whosoever message.